It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 21 91. Welcome to Celebrating World Cup Lives. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. And it is a pleasure at this great time of the year with the World Cup in full swing to celebrate the life of a man who has made his mark in World Cups. And it's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives, my guest in the studio. Well, let's just call him Flem. That's how you know him from his cricket career, from his television career, from his radio career. Damien Fleming, hello, mate. Pete, thanks for having me in, mate. Always happy to talk a bit of cricket. Yes. With and a little bit of me on the side. Lovely to talk to you <laughs> and to talk about you as well. It is a great time of the year, isn't it? Because the 50-over game tends to have been sat on the back burner, I think, for a little while now. But now it's a celebration of the 50-over game. Yeah, it used to be an accelerated test match, didn't it? And yeah. that was the appeal of one-day cricket. It was all over in one day. But uh, unfortunately for one-day cricket, that younger brother, T20's, come in mm. And, uh, you know, half the time, um, as much action there. But, Pete, I feel at World Cup time, that's when one-day cricket does come back into vogue. And, you know, I think in, in decades to come, you know, where one-day cricket will be played between nations in between World Cups, I'm not so sure. But I, I, I truly believe there'll still be a 50-over World Cup. When you talk to the younger generation now, Flem, obviously they're very heavily focused on T20 and the excitement and, and there's always something happening. But we can go back to the days where one-day internationals were just the biggest show in town. And I often remember that the host city didn't get the telecast of the, yeah. the entire game. You'd see the first two hours and then... Say so living in Melbourne, you'd have to listen on the radio. But it was compulsory <laughs> listening because there were 80,000 at the MCG screaming their lungs out. Oh, it was. And I just remember night games. Uh, yeah. I was fortunate to play a few at the MCG. You know, we had 85,000 when we played um, England. I think it was the night Bay 13 was having one of its big nights and the English fielders were getting bombarded. So Warney put on a helmet and walked down to Bay 13, you know, to quieten <laughs> down. The, the, the MCG legend himself had got down there. But it, it was just so exciting. Uh, Day-night cricket, um, full stop. You know, Sydney used to be absolutely packed. It was like a nightclub, you know, mm. 40,000 people at a nightclub. Um, so, you know, and I still think the format um, as a player is really rewarding because – in T20 cricket, it's hard to score a hundred. It's hard to get. It's hard to get a fifer. But in one day cricket, it, it, um, you know, to get hundred, you know, milestones, hundreds and fifers still come into play. Also, um, for social cricketers, I think one day cricket's got a got a great. Um, well, it'll be used a lot, won't it? That you, you actually get a result on the day. Um, you might not be able to play two day games, um, but you'll play a one day um, league. Uh, whereas T20 cricket, as I said, if you if you for participation, for playing, you know, how rewarding is it? Um, but certainly as a showcase, you know, the Big Bash has been fantastic um, and I can live with the T20 World Cups. Um, you know, T20 cricket's been great for the game. And I think the other thing, Flem, about the format too is that there is another commentator quite often and 
that is one of the players out on the field. Yes. That interaction between the guys in the box and, and the people on the field enables you to feel a bit closer. I go back to, you probably remember the game, that Warney was playing at the MCG in the Big Bash. And basically they handed it over to him. I think it was in the Channel 10 days. Yes, it was. And he just talked his way through what he was going to do. That was five minutes, four minutes, of the most fascinating sports television I reckon I've ever seen. But Pete, you know, talking about your career as well, how much would you have liked to throw down to um, a forward who's about to kick a goal? Yeah. To talk us through. Well, what about a golfer who's playing, the, you know, the second shot? Is he going to go off for the green in two or is he laying up? We're Wouldn't actually awesome? doing a bit of that now. With the LPGA oh, events wow. that I do, we've developed this thing or OMG has developed this thing where it's a little collar that they put around their neck and so after they've played a shot we put the collar around their neck so that they can hear what we're saying and we chat to the golfers this it's going to be something in sport that happens a whole lot more because you need to get that involvement of the people who are out there as well as the people who are up in the box straight away as a frustrated golfer um that's actually a coaching tool too you can actually learn while you're watching the coverage Mm. on, on why they did that and um, the analysis put in pre-shot, you know, um, with the caddy there. Um, but back to, um, you know, the, the, the Warns and, and McCullums and the Kevin Peterson. Remember those four sixes yeah. he hit? He's going to go back in my stance. I reckon he's going to bang short of a length and I'm ready to go that. Okay, I've pulled him a couple of times. He's going to go full slow ball. I'm going to hit him back over his head. I mean, that's absolute gold because even as ex-players who work a lot in games – um, as I said, in T20 cricket, you, you, you're trying to pre- predict a lot, okay? But you still don't know what's going through the individual player's head. And, that, and that's to have the opportunity. What I've learned over the years, though, there's only a certain amount of individuals, individuals that have got the confidence in their game mm. to actually do it. Would you have been able to do it in your day or do you think that it would have been distracting yeah, for Yeah, I think for myself with my um, capabilities, I would have thought um, what happens if it doesn't come off? Mm. Whereas someone like I think Glenn McGrath could have done it. Um, I know we're going to get into World Cups in a minute, but I remember 1999 World Cup uh, disrupted start. Um, McGrath and Warren probably not going as well as they should be. Steve War, our leaders. And then I was at breakfast and I read an article. Um, Glenn McGrath was writing articles a bit like Sir Richard Hadley and said, um, I've been average up until now. Um, big game against the West Indies. I'm going to take five wickets and I'm going to knock over Lara. And then I went over to him. I go, yeah, but what happens if you get number for 50 or Lara Belcher? That's what my mentality would. Yeah. No, he did. I think he got five for 11 off nine and knocked over Lara on the pitch <laughs> leg, hit the top of off. So, oh, yeah. now nah, I think um, you'd have to have a certain um, character, Warren and Peterson, um, who back themselves, and, and also real faith in your, in your ability. Um, the only other thing, too, what I've found, too, Pete, is um, with the player access that generally is closed shop up top, and that would have been the same. When I played, I probably would have said no to a lot of things. Because we're um, educating them through the, the big bash, um, whereas you, you're on debut, we'll probably talk to you. We'll interview you. We we'll, might throw you on the ground. So now there's this generation of cricketer who's used to talking on the field and goes on to play for Australia. So I, I think we, that's why we're going to get more access um, to the international players as well. Do you think that the last bastion of sport, I often describe the last two bastions of sport where everything was private away from the television cameras as the jockey's room at Flemington and the test team dressing room at whatever venue it was. I was fortunate enough to be able to go into that 
jockey's room at Flemington and, and be part of that and talk to the boys. Do you think the cameras will ever get in to the dressing room before a Boxing Day test or the Sydney New Year test? Or is yeah, it I think so. one step too far? I think it will. It's, it's a gradual sort of thing. Um, and I know Adam Gilchrist went into the rooms, I think, after the Perth test match for Fox Sports, but I don't think he was there when the song was actually sung, mm. which is just common with um, footy teams, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I think it's a gradual thing. It was a tough summer for Australia, you know, with obviously, you know, the Warner and, and Smith, Bancroft suspensions and a lot of changes uh, up against a really strong India team under the pump. So, you know, maybe, you know, from next summer on, you know, the gates will open up a little bit um, in that regard because, um, to, to be honest, for, as a viewer, you're getting trained that way now, aren't you? That, yeah. that, that's your expectations. Yep. Um, and and we there's a lot of competitions uh, within other sports, but also entertainment. Um, and the other thing is the broadcasters are paying billions in some money. cases. They want to get every bit of access that they possibly can. Yep. Yeah, so I think you just want to work together, you know, and yeah. certainly, um, you know, you'll have uh, more people off camera who, you know, have a total TV focus, and and um, and that and that's a great mix. Generally, us ex players are, are always a little bit more conservative, um, as in approaching those sort of things. But you know the bigger picture too, and, and you know that it, it needs to open up, and um, you know you just see. A lot of those American sports, well, it's not such a big deal, is it, really, to, mm. to, to, to open up the dressing rooms and any questions, you know, up for grabs. So the tough thing for cricket is there's only 11. Um, so generally there's always one or two players right under the pump, whereas with footy, you know, you obviously double that. But now I'll say it'd be interesting to see where broadcasts are by the next cricket deal because I, I think they're going to be opened up big time. Just before we take a break and we start talking about World Cups and your involvement in them, when you're in the commentary box with Warney, do you ask him about that catch that he dropped that cost you the second hat-trick? Yeah, I haven't spoken to him since that day. Yeah, probably a good idea. But seriously, like, um, <laughs> if the kids are listening to this, any kid out there, you know, one thing, bat and bowl, yeah, but, you know, you might be a batter, might be a bowler, hopefully both. But one thing I think the Australian public expects from their Australian cricketers is to be able to catch the ball. Yes, and that would have been handy if Warney had been able to do that. And that expectation was not met that day with what would have been my second hat-trick. Um, you know, I, I just think of the memorabilia numbers. You know, yeah. that's when the late, great Tony Gregg was in his prime. Mm. You know, you're, you're pumping out 2,000 um, pieces. What uh, Reckondale retail price, probably $595 um, over four easy repayments. Um yeah, I'm probably not in here today, am I? No, I'm you in wouldn't. Be, well, you'd be in Bermuda. You might be, you know, sunning yourself on a palatial abode such as Warney's got, you know, down by the bayside and that sort of thing. Sliding doors. Yeah. I played well, two tests after that. If he'd taken that, I'm, I'm playing 100 tests. Yeah. I can see that there's still some scars. Um, so I think we should take Let's a break. <laughs> no, seriously. Why don't we oh, take a break? Because I haven't. <laughs> Damien Fleming is my guest. We are celebrating World Cup lives thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And we'll be back with more with Flem on the other side of the break. You're listening to Celebrating World Cup Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to Celebrating World Cup Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Great to have you with us for our celebration of World Cup Lives with Damien Fleming. Flem, 
Let's go back to the start first of all. When did you fall in love with cricket? Dennis Ellie. Yeah. So as a 10-year-old, just the three things I wanted to do um, was to play for Hawthorne. You know, Gary Buccanara is my favourite player. Um, Dennis Ellie. So I wanted to open the bowling for Australia. And third was I wanted to be the lead guitarist of Kiss. Ace Freely had my gig at that stage. Um, got to do one of those three. Actually trained down at Hawthorne. Signed with Hawthorne in the under-19s on a Monday night. On the Wednesday night, got picked in the Victorian State squad. So at 17, you're going, I might be one of the best 600 footballers for my age, but I'm probably the best cricketer of my age. Mm. And um, I know Kiss are finishing up, they say, in November on their 50th um, goodbye tour. So you think there's still a chance? And they're up to their eighth league guitarist. I'm not out of it. I'm not out of that. And I'm prepared to put on makeup and to be the spaceman. So a lot of people might say I'm the spaceman. Um, Springvale South was my club. You know, Warren Ayres, who's a legend of uh, Victorian cricket, um, was a few years ahead of me. You know, he was the star. And I just think they just gave me some great attributes. Peter Matheson, Sandy Patterson, you know, my coaches. You know, they didn't teach me a lot about skill. Taught me the basic laws, behaviour. Behaviour had to be (laughs) the right way there. And they were called the Bloods. And then my district club was South Melbourne, also called the Bloods. So I, I just absolutely loved that. Um, played with Wayne Phillips and Lee Baker. Uh, Ian Redpath was obviously a, mm. a strong mentor down there, and he was my first first coach. So it sort of happened really quickly that I missed a whole year when I was 16 and, um, well, virtually a whole year, played a couple of games just at the end. Um, and then by the end of the next year at 17, I'd taken the most wickets in district cricket. We'd lost the final to Collingwood, and then I got picked in the state squad and, and was playing at 18. So it was sort of... At 16, I'm nowhere. At 18, um, your career path was in, ahead of you and and you have to room with Mervyn Hughes on your first tour. No, oh, you can't help that. You know, explains a lot of things about my mentality. Do you remember your first game at the G, Flem? Wow. It was, yeah, it was a one-day game. It was a one-day game against South Australia. I debuted with my massive mullet a few days before. We upset. We beat Queensland. And we actually got on a roll. We're on the bottom of the shield um, table, but we got the final at home and we ended up getting flogged. But back then, 50-over cricket at the G, you know, sort of we'd we'd get our five, 6,000, you know, 15,000 for the final. So, and it was on Channel 9. So, you know, you you actually got a pretty good profile. And I think in the second game, I got man of the match in a semi, got the war twins out, you know. Um, So there was a fair bit of, profile to the FAI Insurance Cup back then. And what about your first baggy green? There's a a presentation ritual that goes on these days. Did someone present you with yours or was it just sent to you and said, you're in the team, pop that on? Yeah, I opened up my coffin in Pakistan and there was my baggy green. (laughs) Do you miss the fact that that ritual wasn't part of uh, what you did in those days? Oh, I'd love to have had, you know, an ex-player give it to me. DK Lilly or someone but, like oh, that? Oh, well, Lilly would have been. I wouldn't have known what to say to Dennis, you know. But I'm lucky enough to have met, you know, done a lot of coaching with Dennis over the years. And oh, Sorry, he coached me as well, but um, what a great man. Um, but that was the expectation back then. So you don't, you know, you don't miss what you, what the, you only live up to the expectation there. But oh, I just remember picking it up and putting it on. And, and back then, you know, there was a real, you know, mentality of until you actually play a test match, don't don't be wearing it around and don't mm. wear it in tour games, you know, which I didn't mind. I, even to this day, I, I you know, I, I reckon until you've actually picked in a test match, um, don't put it on your head. And 
And really, I think on that Pakistan tour, I was sort of picked as a, you know, swing bowler, Terry Alderman type, probably not there for the test matches, more about the tour games. Uh, there was a full one-day series. And um, and then Glenn McGrath, Tourist Quad. Mm. How good was that? <laughs> How good was that? Oh, I'm sure he probably wasn't so quite sharing that viewpoint. Quad. And, um, and lucky enough, we had a centre wicket. And we bowled on a green um, pitch, and and I had a juke ball, which we didn't win in the series. So I remember bowling to Booney. You know, David Boone was such a good player, underrated player. And I was knocking over a couple of times, and I reckon it got me in, which was weird because the pitch had no grass on it. And we used this ball that didn't really swing a lot. But, you know, it's the realisation of a lifetime dream, you know, to to get that baggy green on. It was was fantastic. And if someone had have said to you, when you were a little kid growing up, you're going to wear the baggy green. That would be an achievement in itself. But then you walk off at the end of your first test and you've got a test hat trick as well. Yeah, that's you're not thinking about that. You're not thinking about getting a hat trick. I just wanted to get an, or bowl well enough to get another test match. I didn't want to be a one test wonder. Um, and I took, I think, four wickets in the first innings and bowled really well. Craig McDermott got four as well. Sent him in the, for the outright. Not a, not a good um, decision, that one, because... Their infamous ca- uh, captain, Salah Malik, who later got banned for, for life for match-fixing, throws wicket away for money, um, 230. We just couldn't get him out on this tour. Um, I think I had him drop, Tubby dropped one off him when he was about 60-odd. And uh, when I got the ball eventually, the game was over. You know, there wasn't a lot of interest. And, and, and you know, Amir Malik was just a half folly on leg stump. Bevo caught it, which was a big surprise because... He wasn't a great catcher, Bevo. Mm. Um, and then Inzamal al comes out and, and, and Big Inzi is a beautiful player, you know, great stroke player, but he wasn't a great starter. And I tried a Yorker first ball, hit him dead in front and we appeal, but we're not thinking about getting an LBW in Pakistan. That's the other thing that fell into place. He put his finger up. He was the neutral umpire. So on a hat trick, it's, we take drinks. It's um, no real interest in the game besides this hat trick. I don't want to bowl to Salam Malik. He's 230-odd. Uh, Joe Angel bowls the over. Last ball, single. Salam gets on strike. And it was funny, uh, Pete. You know, I got the ball in my hand. Tubby goes, what do you want? I said, let's get a few slips and all that in. You know, they're four for 550 or something. And I just turned to Craig McDermott at mid-on and just said, Billy, Salam doesn't know yet, but he's going to become part of history now. Like, just corny. And just bowled the ball. And unbelievably, you know, outside edge and heels took the catch. Um... And next month, oh, the boys are celebrating and all that sort of stuff. So it, it was a real buzz, but really it was the four wickets in the first innings that said, well, maybe I'm good enough to, to play at this level. One last question before we get on to World Cups. George Bradley Hogg has been a guest on this program. When I asked him about his baggy green, he was reduced to tears. And he yeah. said that you know, he, he gave it to family members to say thank you for all of the input. Where's yours? Uh, so I don't know why. I, I ended up with three. Um, so one's at the MCG Museum. One's at my parents' house. I didn't even know about that one. I've got another one at home. And it does come in handy. Uh, my kids are uh, – my, my wife was a uh, Australian squad netballer. Uh, my two oldest kids are going quite well, rep football and cricket. And uh, just when they're starting to talk themselves, all those three are talking themselves up at dinner and all that, I just go for a little bit of a walk. I put on a hat, crack open a beer, and I just don't say a word. Do you think so it still comes in handy. Do you think it'll still be the symbol 
that it is now in 100 years' time? Yeah, I reckon it does. You know, to do the odd um, coaching clinic with kids, it's funny, like, because your question is, oh, it doesn't mean anything in that sort of day. So then you go, what's your favourite, um, um, you know, cricket version, T20 cricket, love the Big Bash and all that sort of stuff. And they go, what, what's the ultimate, you know, to play in the Big Bash or get your baggy green? Yeah, up until a couple of years ago, last time I did it, it, it was still to a T. They want the baggy green. Mm. That's How powerful great. is that? Yeah. Let's hope it is that way in 100 years' time. All right, World Cups. This is the name of the show. This is yeah. the, the time of the year. Take us back to 96 and your memories of that World Cup. Yeah, 1996 was, uh, you know, uh, a big World Cup. It was the first one. Oh, no, no, sorry. It was the second one in the subcontinent, but it was split between Sri Lanka, India, and Pakistan. Um, I was coming back from shoulder surgery, had fallen out in the West Indies, that um, famous victory in 1995. Um, so I went home after a couple of week, uh, a couple of weeks over there. They said the morale really picked up after that. I don't know what they were saying, <laughs> what they mean by that. So for me, it was to you know have a total shoulder reconstruction as a bowler. Now my shoulder was falling out, got very lax joints. Um, and for Victoria, I was bowling okay without um, really setting the... the the world on fire there. But, um, you know, I just got a couple of calls from selectors that we were still thinking of you. And I think it was the previous Pakistan tour. I think I only played three one days, but got eight wickets. Mm. So they knew swing bowling can get wickets. So, um, you know, I got picked and, and we didn't go to Sri Lanka. There was a lot of uh, angst between Australia and Sri Lanka out here in the summer. Um, we decided not to go to Sri Lanka, so that only added to it. But I remember we... Uh, I think the second game, Craig McDermott did his calf and I got a game and it was uh, against India, you know, the home nation in Mumbai. And I talked about nightclubs at uh, yeah. the SCG. It was nuts. I don't know what they can get there. So it's 45,000 people. It seemed like 200,000 people. And, uh, you know, India's batting was so strong. You know, Tendulkar, the main one, but Azra Din and, um, you know, I think Drava, those type of players. And um, and we happened to bat well. You know, Mark Ward dominated that tournament. And um, I got the new ball at night, but it you know it swung at night. And I was lucky enough to get five wickets. Um, and, you know, we won the game. Probably the big one of that one was Mark Ward, who was such a handy bowler. He reverted to off spin. Tendulkar was belting us everywhere, and he deliberately bowled a wide when Tendulkar had come down the wicket and heels, heels stumped him there. But for me, individual, it was massive. You know, it was almost 12 months to the day that my shoulder fell out in the West Indies and to come back and get five wickets in a World Cup game. You know, Billy McDermott was going home. So, one, I got wickets, but also it said I'm probably going to play the whole tournament. And um, and we had a real run at it. We had a real run at it. Um, and obviously had a famous semi-final victory over the West Indies yeah. where, um, you know, we underachieved with the bat. We we're probably four for 15. Um, and that's probably the only time I remember, you know, Curtly Ambrose, what, what a legend he was. But just the terminology in the dressing rooms from the dismissed batsman, you know, oh, he never bowls any bad balls. Where do you score off him? It was almost like we'd given up. But then Stuart Law and Michael Bevan got us, and, and Heels at the end got us to, you know, I can't remember what the score was, say 220. So we needed early wickets and we didn't really get them. You know, got a couple. And then I think Richie Richardson and Lara were just taking the, the game away from us. And and Steve Waugh from around the wicket bowled a beautiful ball to knock over Lara. Then Mark Taylor, what a great captain, you know, 
you know, hedged his bets and just went to McGrath and, and Warren. And they got a couple of wickets and um, got down to last over. And I was bowling it. Um, and Richie Richardson was on strike. Um, yeah, what a great player Richie Rich was too. And he smashes the first ball for four. You know, it was almost, it wasn't, you know, full and a half folly. But he used to go back in his stance and just virtually sweep. He'd, he'd played a couple off McGrath in the previous over. So they need four or five balls. So it's all over. And um, so we're getting the fields right. So I just know I need to bowl a bit full, full of Yorker. So I Yorked him, but I missed off stump. And Curtly Ambrose calls Richie Rich through. Unbelievable. Mm. And Heels did this one. You know, talk about the one percenters. Why guys are legends. And Ian Healy is a legend of Australian cricket. We used to bowl in the middle to Heels. And he'd get the ball, throw it back to us. Every now and again, he'd have a go at the stumps, right, at his end. And it would probably hit it every once and every five. And you'd have to go get the ball and just go, Heels, can you just throw the ball back to me? You know what I mean? <laughs> but you know why he's doing it for this moment. Yeah. And Ambrose uh, runs through. Heels gets it, hits the stumps. Curtly, I've never heard him speak before this. He goes, no, no, I'm right, I'm right, I'm home, I'm home, I'm home, like this. Goes upstairs and he's run himself out. Yeah. And Heels, for all that work... So it gets Courtney Walsh up. And you talk about the great battles over the years of, of bowler versus batter. You know, McGrath versus Lara. You know, Warren um, versus um, Callis. You know, Fleming versus Courtney Walsh is right up there. And uh, Walsh, he was averaging about one in this tournament. So we thought he would actually, um, you know, get bat on ball and get down the other end because Richard Richardson's going to finish the game. So I ran in. It's the fastest ball I've ever bowled. And I went length and it hit the top of leg stump and 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 it, it was one of the most euphoric moments ever. And it was just running. And I, I don't know why, but I had to run to heels. So I'm running and other teammates are trying to come in and I'm dodging all them and finally get to heels. Then I hug um, Mark Taylor, who's first slip. And then the third person I hug is Shane Lee. Like Shane wasn't even playing. He's the third guy in there. That's how quickly <laughs> he's rented. So we're into a World Cup final. Yeah. It was just amazing. And... You talk about preparations and professionalism. So the finals in Pakistan. We haven't played one game in the tournament in Pakistan. We go there, and my memories are that we train really hard under Bob Simpson. You know, that was an attribute of Bob's coaching, that, um, you know, fitness wasn't going to let us down. I think we even did a beep test the night, day before. Trained during the day, right? And in hindsight, that hurt us in the final. So we batted first, got off to a fly. They fought back hard. There was a power outage. So are we going to bowl, go out there and bowl or not? Go out there and guess what happens um, in Karachi, you know, in March. It, it's due. So we get the ball. We got a couple of early wickets. And then in the end, it was like dipping a ball into a bucket. Yeah. And the outfield was wet. And we won the toss, so we could have dictated it. So, so Sri Lanka, what a story. You know, we decided not to go there. They've come from behind. Revolutionised cricket, you know, batting. Um, slogging from the start, Aravinda to Silva, star, Ranatunga got into our heads, so good on him, well played, and and Sri Lanka win the final, and then you don't know whether you're going to play in another one, yeah, and just think, um, you know, if I never got the other opportunity, I'd be going, well, why didn't we train at night? Why didn't we train at night and find out um, about the the actual uh, conditions there? So um, devastating loss, um, and. Um, you know, I suppose for, for, you know, there was three guys in that team that never got another opportunity to win a World Cup. We'll talk about 99 after the break, Flynn, but one last question about 96. 
you love your footy. You've spoken to a lot of footballers over the years who played in losing grand finals, and they talk about that feeling that sits in their guts. But 12 months later, they can do something about it. Yeah. It takes three years for you to do something about it. Did you have a similar feeling, or does it not quite equate to the well, the same thing? It probably doesn't hit you till may, maybe six months out. Mm. You know, um, So that's two and a half years. This was only a three-year gap. Um, for some reason, but because um, yeah, that's the hard thing with, and that's where they're trying to get some context to one day cricket, isn't it? Like you want to win every series and you want to win every game, you want to win every session, but it's not like winning a World Cup. Yeah. So you know, you really you just got to see where you are in two and a half years, three years down the track. But certainly, once we based ourselves in Carter for the nineteen ninety nine World Cup, which we're going to talk about. Um, I think there was some real resilience, particularly from from the eight players that played in that final, and we had another opportunity to win a World Cup. So close in 96, things would change in 99. We'll talk to Flem about that when we come back on the other side of the break. Celebrating World Cup lives, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. You're listening to Celebrating World Cup Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to Celebrating World Cup Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Damien Fleming as we celebrate World Cup Lives thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals. Let's move on to 99. Fleming talked about that burning desire that probably evolved six months before the tournament and you go there and it was an unforgettable World Cup in so many ways. Learn a lot of lessons through it, I think, um, in a sporting contest and in a life uh, context as well, you know things that um, things don't always go to plan. Um, sometimes you've got to adjust. You got to know uh, when it's time to to be proactive, and then and then also um, in the end, um, you know having some some really close wins and um, having that belief as a team that it doesn't matter what situation we get into in the final, we can win from anywhere. We didn't have that belief early in the tournament. So we get in and we start badly. New Zealand absolutely flog us at Cardiff. We lose to Pakistan um, at Headingley. And um, our only win was against Scotland, who'd taken up cricket four weeks before the tournament, Pete. So that was, that was pretty big. <laughs> Crisis meeting. And, and this is a big tick for the leadership. So maybe they misread the, the room with the, the drinking and, and maybe the squad, but... Um, Steve War and, and Jeff Marsh, you know, in the dressing rooms, heading league, just going, we're, we're not leaving here until we're totally committed. And that's where big Tom Moody, I, I just remember his phrase. He just said, we just need to erase the zone of doubt. So what a great comment yeah. um, from a non-status leader. He wasn't captain, vice-captain, deputy vice-captain. But the strength of this group was the non-status leaders. And so what was the zone of doubt? Well, you know, Michael Bevan, who was probably our most introverted member, he felt like we're putting too much pressure on ourselves um, and that our batting plans weren't, were, were probably, you know, too defined. We need a bit of flexibility there. Uh, Bowling-wise, it was the other way. Myself and Adam Dahl spoke the night before just going that, that there's no real bowling plans besides each bowler bowling as well as possible. Let's break it 0 to 10, 11 to 39, 40, you know, some sort of way there. So Steve Waugh agreed. So myself and Adam Dahl took on those plants, and which was massive for Chip because he got dropped early in the tournament 
but still committed to these these plans. So the leadership, as you can sense, is just starting um, to, to build even more because all of a sudden, once you put your hands up to do this, you've got more ownership, but you've also got more responsibility, mm. haven't you? When we talk about that World Cup, there are a couple of very famous incidents and uh, both of them involve South Africa. The Herschel Gibbs, Steve yeah. Waugh one. I think Steve has written in his book that he never actually said the words, you've just dropped the World Cup. But let's hope that he did say something like that because it's one of the great quotes in Australian sporting history. Yeah, it's funny. It was the general feel that he did say it after the game. Um, but I remember Steve War was was such a inspiring captain. Um, I mean, he was pretty good with his words. Like He was the first captain, um, you know, to actually before each tour – you'd actually get a sheet of paper with your expectations. And you know how much that meant um, coming from Steve War, But also, you know, when your role's defined, well, you can train for it. And that's where I reckon sporting teams uh, and businesses can get it wrong, is they don't have a clear definition. If you don't have a clear definition of what you, what, what your expectations are in that role, um, well, there, there's going to be inconsistent results. Mm. And, and also, um, even in self-analysis, when you know what your role is, um, you know, th- th- there's a clear, did I do it or didn't I not? Or that's where I need to improve or that's what I need to keep going. So Steve was good like that, but he walked out to bat. He had that little red rag, you know, he used to have yeah. in his back pocket. There was no way he was physically coming off the ground that day in Headingley without winning the game. That's how much the willpower, which the greats have got, you know, Warren and, and McGrath, Ponting, those type of guys. Um but the funny thing is the night before team meeting and uh, we're going through the South Africans and the great man, Shane Warne, puts his hand up and he just says, I don't think Jonty Rhodes or Herschel Gibbs control the ball when they catch. They throw it up too quickly and they haven't controlled the ball. I reckon we should stand our ground. So Steve War said it's not a team plan or a team rule, but if an individual feels like that happens, well, will you question it? Now, it didn't quite happen like that, but how perceptive of Warney to, yeah. to pick that up. And, um, yeah, I reckon at that time, South Africa were probably the number one team in the world, well-drilled and skilled. But I still think they looked up to us a bit, um, and we backed Flair. And us winning that game in the last over, I think, was another little dent into South Africa's South psychology of can we actually beat the Aussies? Mm. That famous photo that exists of the chaos that occurred in the run-out, and you were right in the eye of the storm. Yeah. Tell us about that moment, the moments leading up to it, and then the actual moment itself. Yeah, I've signed a few of those photos over the years. I My bet only you regret have. is I wish they knew they were going to take the photo because I would have turned around because all you've got is the number three. <laughs> um, just maybe a thumbs up to the photographer, but no, just nuts. Absolute mayhem. Um, you know, all, I knew I was bowling the last over. I'd probably done that for the previous five years. And, and we all know that, um, you know, I wasn't the best bowler on the team. That's McGrath and, and Warren. But I, I had. But what made you a good closer? Because yeah, well, that was the role that you were given. Yeah, and guess what? I, when I'm giving advice to, to young um, cricketers now, I go, well, that's still a specific role in T20 cricket. Mm. If you can be the best starter and closer, you are getting games. Um, so in test match cricket, there's not as much role definition as that. So um, when I, you know, played those first one days for Victoria as an 18-year-old, I just bowled 10 overs out straight, you know, just hopefully getting a couple of wickets. After a couple of years, I started to bowl at the start at the end. Um, 
So I started to make that my role. So by the time I played for Australia, I'd already done four years of it. And I think it was my second game or third game in South Africa. They needed six runs off the last over. End up Alan Borders last over. And they only got three or four runs over and we won. So from that day, it was sort of cemented that I bowled at the end. And, um, you know, I think my strengths were my flexibility. You know, I'm known as a swing bowler, but I reckon my change of pace was actually my biggest strength that even though I was, I'm a mid-130s bowler, I think my bouncer and Yorker were probably closer to 140 and my slow ball, my couple of slowies were 115. And back then it was um, was uh, stumps Yorkers, wasn't it? Now, mm. now you've got to be able to bowl probably three different lines. Back yeah. then was just they miss, you hit. And the old kookaburra after 50 overs used to go a bit of reverse swing. So I knew to get, to get a game um, just to be the best closer. And to have confidence, you know, from that Alan Border game, from the West Indies um, win in 96, it does build up a little bit of uh, confidence. And generally, if they needed more than eight runs, I thought I could win the game. I could close it out, okay? Um so South Africa win not, uh, need nine off the last over. So I'm pretty confident I can close this out. Um, one problem in England, which the uh, bowlers will find out, very small grounds. Yes. Very quick outfields. And back then the juke ball, as good as it was early swinging, it was gumbo straight and hard. So it was a nightmare. But if you were just a little bit off with your, with your Yorkers, you, you were going. Uh, the game before... Kluzner actually struggled with my loopy curveball, and I'd got him out, um, uh, I think once MCG, really big ground. Oh, no, it was in India. Did him in Headingley right, and I, he went, oh, no, and he's just got, he's hit enough bat to hit through. But at Headingley, you know, the, the boundaries are so small. It went for six. Mm. So all of a sudden I'm going, well, I can't bowl slower balls to him because even he mishits them, they're still going for six. So we'd come up with a plan the night before, to be fair, you know, wide Yorkers. Which was hard. I didn't get a couple of days to practice them. And also, I used the stumps as a guide. So for right-handers, I'd look at left bail. So with a little bit of reverse, I'd add York's um, leg stump. And then, um, you know, the opposite for, for left-handers. So with nothing to aim at, it was really tough. So I ran in and it was it was fantastic. You know, crowds going nuts. Boys are saying, come on, Flemo. It doesn't get any better. Released the ball, and it wasn't a bad one. It wasn't a perfect Yorker, but it wasn't half volley. And I, I dare say it was the hardest hit ball in the history of the game. You know, just through cover, just absolutely smashed it. And so it's five or five balls, and I'm walking back, and I'm, I'm still in the game. I'm just going, well, you know, that was a pretty good shot. Steve Wall asked me if I'm going okay. I said, no, I'm not going there, Steve. Run in for the second ball, try it, and this is a half volley, Pete. So this deserves to go, and it does go, and it's a tie. And it's interesting um, how you react. A lot of people go, you know, what's going through your mind? Because it's a tie, four balls to go, and I can sense, don't worry about my teammates, it's over for them. Mm. They're home. They're packing their bags. They're off. But it's funny, like, I just had this voice in my head go, you have to bowl him out now. You have to bowl him out now. So I said to Steve Waugh, my, my, all along I wanted to come over the wicket and bowl those Yorkers, you know, trying it for the lefty, aiming for the top of leg stump, the lefty, and hit the base of off. So I said to Steve Waugh, I'm coming over. Now, this is a big tick for Steve Waugh's leadership. This might be his last chance to win a World Cup. He was a very open captain, you know, not, not a um, dictator, and he backed, he backed me. 
And he was really good like that. He liked backing his players who backed themselves. So I said, I'm coming over the wicket. He brings in the ring field and um, running for the third ball. And I, and I bowl length ball. I actually get it wrong. But it's quite a tight line and length. Um, he hits it to Darren Lehman at mid-on. And the run's on. Like, I don't remember any calling. And Darren Lehman from, what, a metre and a half away gets the chance to get us into a World Cup final. And he misses. But it's funny. I'm, I'm walking back to my mark. And the boys say later on, Kluzner and Donald don't communicate. They don't talk. Like, if I'm batting with... Bevan or Mark War, Steve War, surely the communication would be try and hit through the field for the next two balls. If it gets down the last ball, we're just running. I vividly, I'd swear that Klusner didn't call. Klusner just ran. He just wanted to get it over and finished. But the ball's not that far from my right hand, so Donald stays in his crease. Ball goes to Mark War. I know he's going for the stumps. He said later on he's throwing it to me. He's going for the stumps. <laughs> and luckily he didn't because Donald was in his crease. So now I get the ball and I proceed to underarm the ball to Paul Gilly. So it must have seemed like it was so slow. It was going to take hours to get to him. And then he takes the stumps and it, it's the pure euphoria, isn't it? It doesn't matter what sport it is. We're through. Um, then there's no security at this World Cup. No security. So all of a sudden everyone's running onto the field and they want memorabilia. So Gilly's grabbing stumps and all that and we're running off. I remember just getting into the dressing rooms and we're just jump, we're going off. We're going absolutely off. A completely unforgettable moment in Australian sport and it's brilliant to hear your take on it being out there in the eye of the storm, as I said. We're just about out of time, Flynn. We'll take our final break and then some impressions on this World Cup and some of the things that we've seen so far. Damien Fleming is my guest as we celebrate his World Cup life thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to Celebrating World Cup Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to Celebrating World Cup Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Our final segment with Damien Fleming. Flem, what do you think we've seen so far from this World Cup? It seems as though the bounce is back and uh, you can open with spin. Yeah, I like it. Um you know, the fast bowlers need to fight back. I think spin's dominated T20 cricket and 50-over cricket the last couple of years. And, um, you know, short ball bowling, as long as you can get it up high enough and accurate enough, um, it, it brings in the pull and hook shot, which they don't get to play a lot, the, the top order batsmen. So I like to see that. Once the wickets get worn later in the tournament, will it have the same effect? I'm not so sure. Um, but spin in particular to England. Teams are opening with wrist spinners um, in that first 10 overs, and it's a definite tactic a- against them. So I'll, I like it. Um, the big scores haven't happened yet, but they will. They will. There was an ex- I think there's, the wickets have been a little bit green, um, but I think it's still very open. Six months ago, India-England final for me. Mm. But our boys have um, – I, I think, you know, I talk about that journey in 1999. I think confidence built from that win in, in India and, and against Pakistan – is going to put him in good stead throughout the tournament. Um, we need Usman to get going at number three. That's been a troublesome spot for the Aussies. He'd, he'd probably prefer to open. Marcus Stoinis needs to have a big tournament, particularly if we play two spinners at times. We're going to need his overs, but also he's got to be able to finish at number six. And the third seamer, you know, it's probably yeah. generally our fourth and fifth seamer has been strong in World Cups. 
Um, Nathan Coulter-Niles got the chance right now, and he's a very good bouncer bowler and also can belt the ball. But, um, you know, our, our third seam is Richardson and Berendorf. They don't have 100 one-day international wickets. So, you know, I could see oppositions thinking that, that we're vulnerable there. So if if Usman gets run, Stoinis has a strong tournament, and Coulter-Niles does, there's, there's no doubt we can win it. And just briefly, do you think that this tournament will finally see Warner and Smith finally forgiven by the Australian people, or do you think that there will always be some baggage to carry? Yeah, that's a good question, that. I, I think to a degree, um, I think there'll be people who would think that, that they should have been banned for life. There's a small percentage, yeah. and they won't change that. But I would have thought there's um, most Australians will think, well, you, you've you've done the crime and you've you've, you've done your time. So um, I, I think, and, and winning doesn't hurt either. No. So you win a World Cup and you win an Ashes. Um, you know, I think that they'll they'll feel like Warner and, and Smith are, are back in. Within the t- teams are really resilient. So I've got no problems that they'll, they'll be fine for the dynamics there. But I think it was a tough summer for the Australian team, but also the Australian public. Um, but I, I reckon strong World Cup, win the Ashes, um, you know, I think Australian cricket would be ready just to have our best 11 on the park. And obviously, Warner and Smith, two of the greatest players we've ever produced. Yeah, let's just appreciate the rest of their career. Do the Hawks make the finals? Hawks won't make the finals, but we're building. Okay. Thanks, Pete. It's been a delight to uh, watch you play. It's been a delight to listen to your insights in the commentary box, and it's been really good to catch up, Flim. Thank you. Thanks, Pete. Damien Fleming joining us on another edition of Celebrating World Cup Lives. Thanks to Tobin Brothers. Plenty more still to come in the future. Hope you can join us then. You're listening to Celebrating World Cup Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating Lives. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.